Europe Out Loud, a podcast about Europe's history, culture, and civilization. Brought to you by the Martin Center with Frederico Reo. Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of Europe Out Loud, a podcast series that tries to bring European history, culture, and civilization to bear on problems of contemporary EU politics. Today, we are going to deal with an issue that is um, unjustly, I think, neglected in uh, European integration because it is very important, and that's the role of architecture in European integration, and more specifically of how architecture can help uh, build a legitimate and loved European community and why it has failed uh, to a large extent to do so, so far. And uh, to discuss that question, I have a great guest. I could not have hoped for a better guest. That's uh, uh, Leon Krier, a great architect and architectural theorist, which I am uh, delighted to welcome on the platform. Welcome, Leon. Good morning, Federico. Um, well, Leon has a very long and distinguished career, which I cannot really summarize in details. I will only give some maybe highlights and say that he was born in Luxembourg in the 1940s. Um, and that's important because Luxembourg has been uh, uh, central to the development of his ideas of architecture and of his entire uh, career. Uh, he is one of the greatest living theoreticians and practitioners of uh, new traditional architecture and new urbanism. And we will try to understand a little bit what this is in, uh, in the course of our conversation. He has taught uh, in, in many universities, including the Princeton University, Yale University, the University of Virginia. He has won a number of uh, architectural uh, prizes and he has worked on a number of very um, high profile and important uh, projects. Um, I will mention only one because uh, for due to time constraint, maybe the most high profile, which is the, the uh, development of an entirely new uh, uh, traditional city in Poundbury in Dorset County, uh, which he, he worked on in his capacity as advisor to the Prince of Wales, Charles, uh, whom everyone uh, knows, of course. I propose, Leon, that we jump immediately uh, in medias res, that we start by discussing a specific uh, um, episode and initiative that will give you the chance to reflect on some of your architectural principle. Uh, and, and that is um, a recent initiative of the uh, European Commission called the New Bauhaus Initiative. Now, uh, uh, for a long time, architecture was not a central part of European integration. It was relatively marginal. There was no direct engagement of the EU institution with architecture, except the buildings that they, that they realized for their own uh, use. That changed in September 2020 because Commissioner von der Leyen, the president of the commission, um, launched this new Bauhaus initiative uh, with the idea of um, uh, developing ideas towards a more essentially environmentally friendly architecture that would uh, match the European Green Deal. Um, and therefore, we are in a phase of discussion on what this can, um, can uh, produce, but the Commission has already emphasized the three core values, which are sustainability, aesthetics, and inclusiveness. And therefore, I would ask uh, Leon by by uh, asking you what is your take on this um, initiative, on its potential outcomes, and uh, maybe on um, whether choosing the Bauhaus as a model to develop an environmentally friendly architecture 
uh, seems reasonable to you. What what has been the Bauhaus historically? Does it make sense to associate it with sustainability? Yes, thank you, Federico. The <clears throat> choosing the Bauhaus as a term is a provocation. It was clearly chosen, and uh, now it was hundred hundred years of the Bauhaus Foundation. But for most people, Bauhaus means boxes, you know, and it's. Um, if you look uh, at the Bauhaus closely, it was, and the, the record, what was built of Bauhaus, uh, as far as urbanism go, <clears throat> it's the, the largest uh, undertaking by Gropius, who was one of the founders of uh, the Bauhaus, is uh, near Stuttgart, near uh, Karlsruhe, Damastock. I analyzed this, this uh, thing, which is about many, many hectares, of Zeilenbau, of straight long buildings with dead ends. And uh, just only to get an idea, it's, it's really laid out like a concentration camp, like a camp, let's say. It's not a town. It's purely residential. It has one, I think, one shop uh, for many thousand people. And it was basically suburb. It was suburbia, industrialized suburbia with that kind of industrialized look, I think, with one type of window for thousands of, of, of houses and apartments. Now, Bauhaus mainly means an abstraction of architecture. Bauhaus produced some interesting results for, let's say, consumer items uh, designed often by very talented people, but it's not a philosophy. Bauhaus was a school uh, which came out of the Bergbund and you know, industrial critical critical thinking uh, as to Gründerzeit and Victorian uh, excessive design using, you know, designing factories as if they were churches and churches as if they were castles. And, you know, this 19th century had already a lot of confusion in it uh, as far as culture goes, because, you know, this kind of chinoiserie or in Potsdam, you have a beautiful uh, mosque in Potsdam but it was never designed as an, used as a mosque. It's a pump house for the fountains of Potsdam Gardens. Now, and this was done by a very great, by probably one of the greatest architects of the 19th century, Ludwig Persius. So it's not to do with talent or with, you know, with, with dedication. There is a confusion, uh, uh, a theoretical confusion, which also um, nourished a lot of what happened in the after the war with European architecture, is that <clears throat> there was a choice that modernity, as far as architecture go, would only be an industrially produced, mechanical, repetitive architecture. And the Bauhaus was, in a way, a precursor uh, to this you know, industrialization of consumer items and therefore also industrialization of houses rather than being built by craftsmen designed by individual architects, you would have a mechanical product which would be cloned and repeated and therefore would create a kind of um, a social equality because everyone would look in the same direction, the same kind of uh, square meters dedicated to an individual with the same kitchen and the same bathrooms. And that was considered to be socially progressive. Can I just uh, pick up on a point that you you made? Because you, you, in a way you are saying it's probably a, a, the wrong reference also because it's a, it's an industrialized type of architecture which is 
everything but environmentally friendly. Well, this is this is a project that is meant to be uh, uh, about sustainability. And I'd like to use that for a follow-up question on the relationship between architecture and sustainability, which I think has been at the center of your concerns. Sustainability in its broader sense, because um, of course, I, I think in your work, you have emphasized the way in which architecture has to be sustainable on many fronts. It has to be durable, it has to be lasting, but it has also been sustainable from the point of your community life. It has to be conducive to uh, healthy and humane um, communities. But uh, I would like to ask you, what what is your take? This is a, a serious issue that we are having here, right? The environmental ecological uh, crisis. And in a way, there is in the Commission initiative the awareness that architecture can do something to solve that, uh, except that maybe the model they are following is wrong. So what is the right model? How would you go about tackling the problem of um, the relationship between architecture and sustainability based on your philosophy, let's say. Well, one of the problems of modern politics is the, the language, you know, the, the way language is used. Words are being uh, uh, weighted and then, in my sense, perverted. Sustainability is, uh, um, as far as modernism goes, is, is non sequitur. It's an impossible uh, thing. And then you say that has to become carbon neutral. Carbon neutrality is, is an idiotic nonsense. If, if people would only think and research into it, you cannot have civilization which is carbon neutral. I mean, the carbon is being produced somewhere. Uh, you know, by shipping it off the guild to China, uh, we can then have clean uh, electric cars, but somewhere the carbon is, and carbon is not the problem which is made into, to, to justify uh, in my mind, criminal politics. Um, there was a Georgescu, no, uh, George, forget now his name, but this famous mathematician uh, who said, you know, that there is no, no sustainable civilization because the more people we nourish now, the less people we will nourish in the future. We live on, on a finite planet. And there we, we go into that whole problem. What is, what is sustainable or what is the most sustainable? Now, uh, building cities before, let's say, 1800 was never a problem of sustainability because usually cities were built with local materials uh, for relatively small populations, local populations. And only for very high-performance, prestigious buildings would you ship marble from Italy to, to, to Trier, for instance, in Germany. This was only done for very rare uh, occasions. But now with the, <clears throat> with the event of uh, synthetic materials, uh, Geography, locality, local materials were no longer uh, considered to be important. And uh, what is the characteristic of, of modern unsustainability is that the, the, the very use of synthetic materials for buildings, for short-lived short buildings, cannot be sustainable in any sense for how, however few or many people you want to build. Because synthetic materials are enormously energy, energy vorous. I mean, they eat energy by the tons. If you if you look at the from the air at at European uh, concrete uh, works, 
whether it's in Valencia or I don't know, around France and England, they are colossal, colossal enterprises. They are the size of towns. And what they do is to grind natural materials into powder and then mix it. And that is becoming concrete. So, and this whole grinding process and then transporting and so on is enormously uh, causing enormous energy. Now, if we consider that these materials, most of the plastics and concretes and even steel, unless the high performance steel, they are very short lived. They rust or they, 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 they get eaten by, by oxidations and so on. Now, so the Bauhaus came about with the idea that uh, you need to industrialize production. Craftsmanship is finished, even though the, the only craftsmen there were the masters <laughs> and, you know, to build models. But the idea is just to build models for mass production. And so Bauhaus is a symbol of mass production. And it is exactly this mass production, which was meant to be as far as fridges go and um, hoovers and cars. They are designed to please people, to seduce people. And that's why people buy them. Uh, according to their affordability. But I mean, the way, what you are saying, Leon, is that well, what, you, what you really are saying is that um, the, the only way to build sustainably is to um, um, return to an appreciation of traditional craftsmanship and traditional modes of architecture of the type that you have propagated uh, throughout your life and which, uh, you know, Pandre that I was mentioning at the beginning is, is an important example, right? Yes, that is the ideal, let's say, the, the traditional town, not only the, the forms of the town, but the form of the buildings, the form the, the, the buildings of, uh, form public space, they form neighborhoods, they mix, they are extremely different in, in sizes of lots, in sizes of families, in, in, in sizes of incomes. Uh, you know, the traditional European town was a marvelous instrument to create society, to make the rich and the poor into one, one society because they need each other and as good neighbors. Otherwise, you don't have society. Uh, modern, modern society is divisive. No, not only <clears throat> if you compare the, the uses which are concentrated in a traditional town, you have shops next to residences, next to schools, and next to churches, and next to temples. You have all within a pedestrian walk. Uh, modern zoning is the instrument to separate, to socially separate societies into the rich and the poor, the, 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 the noisy and the quiet, the old and the young, and, you know, uh, into enormous zones of single uses, either for living, and then for working, for storage, for university teaching, for campuses, and so on. Now, the way we spend now hasting between these zones is what occupies most modern life. Three hours in the United States, in Europe more and more, get stuck in traffic and so on. And that it is that which is unsustainable, because not only unsustainable ecologically as far as energy goes, but also from purely human point of view, from, from uh, uh, you know, daily experience. It's a horrible experience to be stuck in traffic all the time. And uh, because you, you learn nothing, it's, uh, you, know, you get only stupid radio blaring at you and you see ruined. You know, I, I drove the other day 
up and down what used to be my town, Luxembourg, was a fantastic town. I mean, it was beautiful in all directions. Now it's just a dump of horror. It's the Louvre of the worst architecture you can see in the world, done by very wealthy people. Now, so there's something which went wrong. Now, I, I grew up, I was born just after the war, and I grew up in an, in a, at the point where things were radically changing, but we were still, my father was a craftsman. He employed about up to 10 people. He was a fantastic person. He was nice with his uh, work with his uh, employees. I grew up in a house where the, the workshop was. We lived in it. We had a garden, beautiful trees, fantastic views to the on the boulevard with trees. The town was perfect to grow up. Now it's a dump. Everything I knew as a child is now ruined or is in, in, in the way of being ruined. Let so me, why did this happen? Let me maybe, yes, indeed, pick up on, on what you just said. Um, one of the interesting things I, 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 I found when reflecting about some of these issues is that, in a way, the, the traditional architecture of European cities bear witness to, to the existence of a European community of peoples. What, what do I mean by that? Um, a Gothic church in uh, Paris is not exactly the same as a Gothic church in Milan, and it is not exactly the same as a Gothic church in Canterbury. Mm. They're all Gothic churches, so they, they share in a common civilizational you know, experience, but then they are subtly adapted to local circumstances. Mm -hmm. So in a way, they are an embodiment of unity and diversity. Um, it, I, I always find it uh, surprising, and this goes back to what you were saying just now, that very little of this architectural tradition of unity and diversity has been incorporated in the institutional buildings of um, post-World War II international institutions, which after all were about giving concrete political reality to that shared sense of civilizational unity that, that existed, right? Um, if you look, um, if you look to I don't know the the European Court of Human Rights in uh, Strasbourg or the Council of Europe, I think it's one of the ugliest uh, and alienating buildings ever mm. ever built. But you could you could make the same points for most of the uh, institutional buildings of the EU. Take the Berlaymont building, which houses the uh, European Commission here in Brussels, or the Justus Lipsius, you know, Europa building. Um, including the new egg structure housing the council, or even the the parliament building in in in, um, in both in Strasbourg and in Brussels, because there are two, and which looks like an international sort of conference center, not a not a representative um, building. So I get the the, the point. That the question I want to uh, ask you is, well, partly what you were about to say. How do you explain the change? Why after World War II we became incapable of Innovating certainly in our architecture, but with an awareness of uh, the beauty of our tradition and with an ability also to represent the unity and diversity uh, upon which Europe has, is built. Um, how do you explain that? And what what do you find uh, uh, is wrong in in this architectural trend? Well, I think what happens to now to health happened to architecture uh, about seventy years ago. <laughs> <laughs> if you look at, at the architecture, not just of Europe, but of the world, and the architecture, if you, uh, you know, 
compare what happened with architecture, which was produced in democracy, you find that democracy, democratic architecture is the worst ever realized throughout history. Not even the worst dictatorial and cruel, bloody regimes of the past ever produced such a mediocrity en grand en masse, you know. Now, why would that be? Because in fact, we don't live in a democracy. If we live in a democracy, uh, or at least in part, in parts, which are still democratic, you still would have diversity. But for instance, in the United States, residential architecture is almost 90% traditional, traditional looks, which in Europe, in Luxembourg, you know, there's one architect doing traditional architecture, which is, and, and he's, he's my partner, and he's Irish. <laughs> he does Luxembourg traditional architecture. I do the first traditional town in England done in 70 years. And I'm from Luxembourg, but I do it in, in England. So it's a choice. It's an intellectual choice, which comes from a critical position, realizing what is happening. That in a way, what is happening is that architecture has been taken over by an elite, which is totally dis dissociated from its roots and from not only from its social roots, but also its technical, above all technical and uh, philosophic roots. Because the difference between a traditional architecture and traditional urbanism and modernist architecture is not so much philosophical, it's technical. That traditional architecture is not a historical style which was practiced in the, in the past. No less than English is a historical language. It's a language. And architecture was a, a language of building with natural materials, local materials. And it is out of these natural materials handled by human hand, which produce technical solutions. But if you produce technical solutions, which are really working well, they have also to be aesthetic because otherwise they will not survive. And that is why there's this, you know, we have the, it's, it's called the Vitruvian triad that primitas, uh, utilitas and venustas a firm, firmness, usefulness, and beauty must be three are three principles which are incatenated. Think you cannot do one beautiful thing without also being beautiful. Now, the, with modernism came this split up. That was it became really an expert thing that people no longer were supposed to understand. In fact, when you ask somebody, "What do you think?" It was for 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 years. I asked, "What do you think of the pyramid of the Louvre?" No, people say, I think nothing. But why should I think something? But then I'm not an expert. They apologize for not having an opinion or for not liking something. No. And whereas architecture, traditional architecture has the evidence, the historic thousands of years of evidence that it is beautiful, not just to those who build it, but to those who come after it, to the young, to the, to, to the foreign, and that is why we can enjoy Persian architecture. We go there, we go to Isfahan, we don't need an explanation why this is beautiful. It's just fantastically beautiful to humans, whether you are Muslim or Catholic or, 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 or atheist. So, and that is what unified uh, humankind, was the beauty of things, of towns, of good manners, of language. Classical languages are always beautiful, whereas local 
local speech is often not very beautiful. <laughs> and that is why, because the natural speech, aesthetics, the music of speech, the aesthetics of it uh, are developed over time and to, to have a tendency uh, to go across your valley, you know, to have good manners, you want to be understood. Uh, you don't want just to talk in, in your family or your group. And so it's the, the, the attempt at international understanding, which led also to spoken classicism. And it is that also the effort in, in local architecture to develop a classicism, which therefore is a higher form, an artistic form of local building, but which then becomes symbol of larger unit of societies, of, of provinces, of, of uh, countries and so on. In a way, what what you are what you are pointing to, it seems to me, is the the connection uh, in a properly structured society between particularistic attachment roots, we would say, and universalist commitment to what holds us all together as humankind. Yes, I think it's it's important that that we all have that 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 we have individuals have their individual you know, concerns and interests and loves, but we're also part of family and of uh, soci local societies and the country and the continent and humankind. And, and it is, that is what has been lost, I think, is that architecture and art generally was something which unified peoples across borders, across ages, across religions. And, you know, if you see I don't know, King's College in Cambridge, you don't need an explanation. It's just stunning whether you, you agree with uh, Anglican <laughs> or, or Catholic or, or, or philosophy. Uh, it's just a stunning building. It's a great space and you can have concerts there, you can sing there, you can have events which are bigger than just you and your family. So it is the structure of class, classical and traditional architectures which are technically important, I think. And it's important that they are techniques which were human, uh, marked by human hand and the human body. Whereas modernism is purely an architecture and aesthetic of machine, of machine scale. Now Europe, the European communities, they built in the 70, 60 years of their building activity, they built one single building of interest, one single building which stood in Luxembourg on a little hill called the European Court of Justice, designed by a Luxembourg and a Belgian architect. It was an imitation of an American building by, um, by uh, Ero Sarinen, but it was a good building. It was in core 10 steel and had like core 10 uh, carpentry. It felt like a real building, it was like a temple. You know what happened? Of all the hundreds of buildings which Europe has realized, it has been destroyed by the architect called Dominique, uh, uh, Dominique Perron, I think he's called, no, Perrault. Dominique Perrault is the, the, the man who built the uh, Bibliothèque François Mitterrand, Très Grande Bibliothèque in Paris. And the idiot destroyed that only building which Europe had realized, which had quality. I mean, there's something which is to do with when experts are just deciding for themselves. The arbitrary takes over. 
And anyone who makes sense is excluded. It's now like with COVID politics. I mean, it's just completely absurd what's happening to civil society. And that, uh, that this this point that you make about experts, I think, is related to a point that it, it seems to me you make quite often, right? That the, the democratic majority of people actually love uh, rather traditional forms of architecture, and it is mostly the architectural uh, profession that is uh, that has embraced modernism and uh, refuses to consider anything else. But I would like to. We are getting close to to uh, the end because our, the clock is ticking. I would like to go back for a moment a bit on the perspective for the future. Um, one of your most important books is called The Architecture of Community. And I think those who are, who are listening to us will understand in what sense this idea of architecture as a community building exercise is at the center of your uh, thinking. Uh, so I guess my, my question, you have criticized you know, the, the existing architecture of um, EU institutional buildings. And, and yet both of us are passionately European, we believe in the, in the need for a united Europe. Um, so I guess my question to you is, what, what should the architecture of the European community look like, in your opinion, to inspire a sense of belonging and allegiance in uh, the European citizens? I know that you have made uh, some proposals, uh, rather uh, um, provocatively, some of them, but how how would you embody the European community of peoples uh, in, in a way that it finds the architectural and institutional um, expression that commands the allegiance of citizens? Well, I think that in order for a building to be beautiful, it has to please most 99% of people <laughs> without explanation, justification, or imposition of any kind. And, uh, you know, it's, it's something which is done by feeling that, thanks God, modernism has not yet changed the capacity of people to feel, but modernism has influenced people's capacity to express their feelings. So now when they like something which is officially not sanctioned by the European community, they apologize. <laughs> no, I think Europe, if... I mean, I'm, of course, also a passionate uh, uh, European because we want to avoid wars uh, amongst nations and we have to, we want to have peaceful. We profited for 70 years of peace and I, I see how extraordinary this was, how lucky we were to, to live through that period. But um, and, and therefore, there is a European architecture, there is a European urbanism, and the European urbanism is universal urbanism. Just briefly, how many minutes do we have? I had a project in Doha, and I presented to the developer what a European city would look like in plan and what a Muslim city would look like. And he said immediately, no, we don't, we don't want a Muslim city. We want a European city in Doha, <laughs> but with Islamic architecture. And that's exactly what I think, you know, that... Uh, the European architecture is a network of spatial interrelation. It's a network where you can reach the maximum amount of, uh, of uses you need every day and every week and every month and every year within a walking distance. Now, people lived, Paris is still, was still organized that way in the Cartier and the Arrondissement. It's now being destroyed also. But so there is a solution which was worked out over thousands of years which is available 
uh, I'm not the only one. We have many architects, young people, people of my age who practice, but they are never published. They are great architects in America, in all countries, in Thailand, in China. The, the thing is that the states, the, the state organizations don't like it. No, they think they have to be modern. And, but modern means ugly. And, and that is an, an, a perversion of the language because traditional architecture is as modern as the ugliest modern modernist building. So it's maybe, very important. Maybe, Leon, we can, uh, we can close, um, since we didn't have time to delve very deeply into the sort of um, philosophical aspects of your thinking, because there, there are many and they are important. Maybe I would ask you a bit as a final um, sentence to, to uh, sort of explain to our listeners what you have defined as the, uh, the architect's categorical imperative, freely interpreting Kant's uh, mm -hmm. famous categorical imperative, because I think it captures quite well, it synthesizes quite well, it seems to me, your architectural philosophy. Well, it's, I translate immediately that if you build a building that uh, the principle of your action should be should become the principle of the universal principle of building. So that, uh, and therefore I think that Europe should really, in order to create an essential symbol, which is lovable, which people will feel drawn to, is that the European community should uh, create a real new capital, European capital, a small European, a new European capital, which people can love, because all the buildings and institutions created by, by the European community so far, they are just awful. People hate them. And, and that is why the you know, power needs to be loved, otherwise it has no permanence. And architecture and good manners and, and beautiful speech and music are part of that, have always been part of it. And it's not today that we can ignore that. Thanks very much, uh, Leon. I can only say that we are, as you know, at the eve of a, of a conference on the future of Europe, which has been launched and whose purpose is precisely to discuss the future of the continent, the continental integration across the board, how to strengthen also the legitimacy of the integration project. And I very much hope that your ideas on how architecture can contribute to all this will be um, present in this debate and will be listened to because they are they are important. So thank you very much for being with us and uh, thank everybody for listening to our exchange, which has been uh, uh, great. Thank you. Thank you, Federico. That was today's episode of Europe Out Loud. Subscribe to our podcasts for more.